Brian. I'm Trish the Dish, and this is Gen X Voice. Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode. Um, we're here to destroy ageism. We're here to hear from different generations, backgrounds, and experiences. And I'm super excited to have you all listen to um, this guest, this this episode's guest. Before we do that, though, um, I just wanted to throw this out there. Um, the last couple of episodes, I've been asking you all to like the Facebook page, thinking that I could just figure out who liked the page and send you uh, an invite to the Facebook group. Um, unfortunately, I uh, did not realize that it is a little hard to figure out who liked the page. So, um, Instead of spending time figuring that stuff out on Facebook, um, I'm just devoting my time to learning my new uh, audio software. So hopefully this episode that I'm using um, my new audio software with will step up from what I was using previously. Um, Hopefully, I mean, it's worth it. But anyway, um, why don't you just uh, go ahead and like the Facebook group and um, request to join the, the Facebook group Gen X Voice. Um, why, why, why do both? Well, the Facebook page is where I, will, um, where I have my live streams um, connected. And the Facebook group is a little bit more intimate. Um, we recently did a poll on you know, kind of kinds of music that we all listen to. Um, you know, my last two guests, um, I shared a lot of music history with them and um, it was really fun. And also it's a really great way to um, just sort of connect our generations or highlight the really cool differences among our generations. So, um, so yeah, get your phone out um, if you haven't done so already and like the Facebook page and then send a request to join the, the Gen X voice group. Um, and I'm sorry, guys. I, I know I failed you. Um, you know, really should figure out how to figure out who liked the page. But in the meantime, um, yeah, I'm going to just focus on like editing and getting cool guests for you guys and things like that. Like this episode's guest, um, my friend Carlos, who... Um, I love to call Dr. P because he just got his doctorate in um, Latino history in the United States, specifically the Southwest. Um, Carlos and I met each other actually when we were both teaching um, in Nogales, which is on the border of Mexico and Arizona. And um, so and that was like, um, gosh, like 11, 10 years ago. and. Uh, it's really cool to have him on the show because um, there's uh, there you know there's a lot of talk about uh, what's going on on the border, and he um, he has a lot of insight on growing up on the border and also um, kind of what is going on now. Uh, granted, this episode was recorded um, a few weeks ago. So um not sure exactly what's going on with the border when when this airs. Um, but if you are interested, um, make sure that you um, 
you know, follow some of the links that I'm going to drop in the show notes. Speaking of which, one of the questions that I've been asked um, from some of you in in audience land is, um, you know, what what generation am I in? And so I did some research. Um, I found PewResearch.org to be the most reputable source um, as opposed to just sort of like Googling because when you Google, you have a tendency to just like, I don't know, just find random um, websites and and there's a lot of discrepancies between the generation dates. Um, so I'm going to link that in the show notes. And, um, and I'm also going to just sort of break it down for you guys too, just uh, uh, real quick. But uh, disclaimer, um, I also had to look up uh, Wikipedia. And if you don't know about Wikipedia, that's basically a website that people can just, any old person can go in and edit. Um, so I don't always trust Wikipedia to be the be all and end all. But funny enough for Gen Z and Alpha, the Alpha generation, um, the two newest generations, there's not really a lot written yet. So, um, so yeah, so I've dropped those links as well. And, uh, yeah, just really appreciate everyone. Um, you know, the feedback I've made a lot of, um, great connections. Um, oh, and, uh, we just hit a thousand downloads, um, at the end of January. So I just want to shout out to all my guests, um, that have been on the show. Um, and all of you that are listening um, and connecting with me on uh, my social media and, I don't know, just DMing me um, really kind words and suggestions and just all kinds of great stuff. Um, I just really appreciate you all. It's so awesome because I just started this podcast in August. So the fact that we hit a thousand downloads is like super awesome. So anyway, um, here's here's Carlos. Enjoy the show. Hi, Dr. P. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Trish. It's a wonderful uh, January Saturday morning, so I'm happy to be here with you this morning. Ooh, it is. And I don't know if it's like this um, in the southern part of the state that you're in, um, in Arizona, Nogales, which we'll talk about in a second. But mm-hmm. up here in in good old Phoenix... It is cloudy and overcast and chilly, and up north it's snowing and Flagstaff. How's the weather down in no- in, in Nogi? Well, I'm really uh, jealous because uh, right here it's pretty much a clear day. Still, it's a little bit of a breeze I can see from outside my window. But uh, being a creature of the desert, I really love seeing like those really dark, foreboding uh, skies you know, with clouds. Maybe a little bit of a you know slight bit of thunder in the distance, and certainly that. Uh, smell kind of like the creosote like bushes and kind of like that nice refreshing aroma oh man there is nothing better than the smell of creosotes after a rain it is a hundred percent what makes me proud to be a desert rat like that is what i smelled when i lived in yucca valley joshua tree that's why i smelled living in tucson working in nogales with you and um and, and here in phoenix like i i've never lived anywhere the post rain just smells like heaven. <laughs> if, if 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 heaven could be described as a desert smell. <laughs> no, but what's kind of interesting is that um, depending on what type of desert you're on, you're in here in the the U.S. West, like a uh, it'll smell like a little bit different. A little versus in sort of like the high desert of uh, New Mexico versus the uh, desert sort of like uh, Yucca Valley and Joshua Tree, which has this kind of 
you know, particular little aroma versus here in Southern Arizona. It's just the um, very, it's really hard to put into words like the differences and like sort of like these aromas we still sort of get this rush. I think it's the soil. I think mm-hmm. it's the the granite of the desert of the Mojave mm-hmm. versus, you know, um, I don't, we don't really have granite on the ground here. Well, I don't know. Listen, listeners, <laughs> if one of you is a geologist, I have been dying to become best friends with a geologist, at least to go <laughs> on hikes with. <laughs> um, because I think I've told you this on, on, on one of our hikes that we've done that, um, like, man, I just would love to have someone just be like, well, this igneous rock is well, from the uh, prehistoric period. Anyway, Carlos, before we get <laughs> too far and off track, um, can you tell the listeners um, how old you are, what year you were born, and what generation you identify with? Okay. Well, obviously, this being a Gen X uh, podcast, you know, hopefully I'm not uh, venturing into enemy territory here, but I guess... I'm considered more of a millennial since I was born in 1987. And at the time of this recording, I'm 33 years old. Um, so I think the cutoff between our different generations is in the earlier 80s. Yeah, um, 1980. Yeah, yeah, 1980. So I'm guessing I'm deeply within like the uh, millennial um, period. And um, I never, I was never called a millennial and never even heard the term until pretty deep into my college years. So I was probably like around 21. 22 by the time like I was referred to it referred to as a millennial as such. So um, I do have a lot of Gen X friends. Um, a lot of friends actually who were kind of born like the later portion of like that Gen X um, time period, like the later 70s. Um, never really by choice, never like by the sign. It's just how I kind of like gravitated towards people like that. I kind of grew up in the 80s, really enjoyed like that 80s aesthetic. Um, maybe had like a teenage I mean, adolescence in the 90s, so able to kind of relate to a lot of the aesthetic things that I liked from both periods, the 80s and the 90s. Um, And interestingly enough, since I am a historian of the U.S., Mexico and the borderlands and Latino history, um, one of the things that a lot of historians and cultural critics have noted is that after the year 2000, it really isn't like such a unique identifier for um, aesthetics for certain decades, you know, for most of the 20th century, you're going to have a very unique aesthetic for each time period, whether you're talking about the 1940s, the 50s, the 60s, all the way up until the 90s. Um, but by the 2000s, when you have the internet really bursting everything open, where everyone gets into contact with everybody, um, there is no single identifying thing anymore because there's just so much of everything everywhere that cultural influences are just amplified to such an extent that there there might be certain trends um that might pick up you know, and, you know whether it be in the u.s or different parts of the world but they're just so amplified that they and there's so many different influences at once that there is no one single aesthetic that dominates the for the 2010s the only you know and, and i'm yeah. here in a bit of a spiel but i'll just say the only thing that the 2010s for the most part, really stand out for is just the explosion of social media and just like this sort of like a club music that becomes like so popular now. But that's that's pretty much about it. <laughs> yeah, which is you know I never really thought about that um, because uh, for me that you know the the early two thousands represent um, really kind of the um, apex of indie rock. That's when I was in a you know an indie rock band and. Um, and then the the twenty or the teens 
kind of, uh, at least to me personally, represent more, like you said, more social media mm-hmm. and, and streaming um, becoming a thing. And then, you know, so, so, but you're right. That's not like a fashion or cultural difference. As a matter of fact, I'm to this right now, I'm wearing a pair of um, corduroys that mm-hmm. I bought from Old Navy when you and I taught together in Nogales. And that was, when. what years did we teach together? That was 2011? Yeah, the, the 2010, 2011 school year. Yeah. Um, and that was like, I mean, that's, that's 10 years ago. I'm still wearing mm-hmm. the same clothes. And <laughs> I remember at least, in um and maybe it's just because I was younger and I was more hip, obviously. Like, but but there seemed to be like times where I'd be like, oh, I can't wear these big like mm-hmm. pants anymore, or I, you know, got to shift my clothing and update it. And now it's like I look around and people are still wearing skinny jeans mm-hmm. and hoodies, and so the outfits that I wear are pretty much. I mean, and the beautiful thing is, I mean. A lot of stuff is kind of retro right now. So mm-hmm. a lot of people are, you know, wearing Doc Martens and Vans. And you know, so I get to buy new pairs of those. And um and and Chuck Taylor's uh shout out shout mm-hmm. out to our vice president who's a Gen Xer, um, mm-hmm. Kamala Harris. Um but yeah, like that's but you're right. Like you can't really there's not like a a real um, definable difference, but, you know, speaking of qualifiers, Carlos, Mm -hmm. um, perhaps my listeners have detected a little accent in the way Mm -hmm. that you said Latinos. Um, What do you identify? What what are some of the identifiers? Like, would you be called Latino, Latin X, Mexican American, Brown? What, what would do you prefer um, as an identifier? Okay, well, um, well, I, I think probably, um, I don't know if we've mentioned this yet, like in our conversation this morning, but uh, to those of you out there in podcast land, I actually grew up in a um, community on the U.S.-Mexican border, about three hours south of uh, Phoenix. Um, this It's the most, it's the busiest um, international crossing uh, in, uh, for Arizona and Mexico, um, Nogales, Arizona, and Nogales, Sonora, Mexico. I um, was born and raised here. I taught high school here, um, as we just alluded to here with uh, Trish. Um, I taught U.S. Arizona history and AP U.S. history. Um, growing up here, you know, I always saw myself as a Mexican-American, a uh, Mexican person living in the U.S. or as a Mexicano when I was um, you know, across the south of the border visiting, uh, with my grandparents who lived there at the time. Um when you're raised in these sorts of communities, like these sort of like Mexican dominant communities that are right on the border with Mexico, you don't think of yourself as Latino or or the more modern term Latinx or even Chicano or any of that. Um, you're Mexican, you know, and all these other terms are a little bit more encompassing of other groups. Um, you know, like these terms like Hispanic, Latino, like they just were not part of how we um, refer to ourselves growing up here. Um, you know, but moving to Tucson and when you meet other um, People, you know, sort of, you know, like the, the Latin American diaspora, whether they might be like Salvadoran or Honduran, or maybe they're me- ethnic Mexicans living in the U.S. who don't speak um, Spanish or have any real living connection to Mexico. Um, it really 
makes you like reconsider like who you are um in the context of other people um and ironically enough there's there was a french philosopher jean-paul tolosato who, like, who said you are you are what you are in the context of what others make you um, i love Sartre. <laughs> oh yeah. my gosh he's one of my all-time favorite existentialist um writers y'all should um <laughs> read his books i'll i'll link one of my favorites in the in the description um, of the show. Um, but See, yeah, look how international yeah. we already are. We're barely 10 minutes in, we're already like across the globe. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, borders. I was, right, because I was teaching French while you were teaching um, American history, which um, I'm not French and you didn't identify as a white American. Um, but yet here we were teaching these cultures that weren't ours, right? I mean... Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's kind of um, interesting, but so, so that's so interesting. So let's, so I kind of want to dig just a little deeper into Nogales on the, um, on the Arizona side and listeners, I'm not going to front and pretend like I can speak Spanish, <laughs> but I do have a tendency to um, some words I'll, I might say with a little bit of what I think is an accent and then other words I just won't even try. So we'll leave that up to you, Carlos. Um mm -hmm. Or Dr. P, because you just got your doctorate. We'll talk about that in a second. Mm -hmm. Congratulations on mm, that again. Um, but the community, so it was really crazy that I couldn't find a French teaching job anywhere. I was living in Tucson, which is the largest city um, north of um, of Nogales, closest uh, largest city. Mm -hmm. uh, Phoenix is a couple hours north of even of that. Um, and largest city I, I, in southern, southern Arizona, kind of like the big southern hub. Arizona. Yeah, yeah. And Arizona is huge, guys. If you don't mm -hmm. know um, Arizona, it is is actually a quite a large state. Um, but I, I, I had to go to the border of the Mexican-American border to teach French. And my students, 99% of them were um, Mexican descent. Um, so we're talking about a predominantly uh, Mexican heritage community. Um, and yeah, you had some white folks in there. Mm -hmm. Um, you even had, um, folks who were not, um, brown colored skin, um, that were a hundred percent Mexican mm -hmm. that would actually cross over the border, um, on a daily basis to go to our school. But it wasn't until you were in Tucson which is um, where the University of Arizona is. Um, go Wildcats, right? Is it Wildcats? Bear Down, Arizona. Mm -hmm. Oh, Bear Down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Bear um, Down, Wildcats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, for I forgot all this stuff. It's been <laughs> it's been a minute since I lived in Tucson, but um, but yeah, that's um, you know, it's a college town. It's a it's a big big college, right? Mm -hmm. And you've got um, a lot of white people. You've got a lot of Mexican American. And then you start, yeah, like you said, you start getting introduced to these sort of um, cultures where, like my friend said, she goes, Trish, I know you want to learn how to speak Spanish. Don't just go up to someone who you perceive <laughs> that can speak Spanish and start being like, hola, como esta? She mm -hmm. said that's very offensive in Tucson because a lot of them do not speak Spanish. So how mm -hmm. was that transition for you moving from an area where that people that look like you spoke Spanish to uh, a place like Tucson where people look like you would not be speaking Spanish? Well, to give you sort of like a sense of sort of like the cultural dynamics of uh, Nogales, uh, um, you can probably relate to this, uh, Trish. 
Um, even the white folk that were living in Nogales, Arizona, you know, on the American side, um, they had to speak some Spanish to, to be able to kind of like relate to people. And, yeah. um, you know, a lot of, you know, like, uh, you know, white American teachers who might be teaching at the high school would like, you know, talk to the kids like, ay, mija, you know, my daughter, or mijo, you know, sometimes, you know, kind of, um, or they'd be like, you know, guys, you gotta be here at, you know, 5 p.m. for this school event, not Nogales time, not Hora de Nogales, you gotta, um, just kind of like the, uh, we, we, we won't go into this too much, Trish, we won't, um, you know, just kind of like the fluency <laughs> that people from Nogales are famous for, but, um, you know, there's this sort of, you know, bicultural, um, meshing that you know takes place or like this like interweaving that takes place or even like the the handful of like african-american folk that would you know go to school here like you know they'd be you know pretty you know multicultural in that sense growing up in multiple worlds literally but um living in tucson living at uh, attending school at the university of arizona um it really introduced me to a lot of ideas uh, certainly despite having grown up in a community that's about at least at least at least 95 percent of Mexican ancestry, um, there was very little Mexican history um, in our curriculum uh, in the public schools in uh, Nogales. Um, you might learn a little bit of it if you took Spanish class. That's about it. You know, there's no Mexican history class. There's no Chicano Latino history class. Um, the only time actually during the entire public school journey that I had in Nogales, the only sort of like taste of Mexican American or border history I had was in my senior year of high school and we had a um a teacher who was actually a, a sergeant from the u.s marines who was retired at the time who sort of separated from them who taught us a lot about local border history and a lot of a lot about mexican-american history and that planted a seed that really has continued to grow uh, ever since then and at the university of arizona i learned a lot about um chicano history and um because I kind of mentioned a few minutes ago, um, growing up here in Nogales, nobody would refer to themselves as a Chicano or as necessarily a little bit more, maybe as a Latino or as, as Hispanic, but never ever as a Chicano. But growing, attending school, um, attending the University of Arizona really opened my mind um, to a lot of like this deeper history you wouldn't learn about. A lot of these ideas of struggle, um, sort of like class mobilizations. A lot of the Chicano movement was really much a class-based movement. When we look at Cesar Chavez's um, laborers in the fields, when we look at some of the um, students or the working class that would organize in cities like Los Angeles or in places like Denver, um, or uh, oftentimes in rural parts of uh, South Texas. Um, going, We might be talking a lot, we'll probably talk a lot about um, turning points or points of no return throughout this conversation this morning but uh for me learning about this history that hasn't been that's strongly not mainstream in a public school setting really made me um re-envision uh, my conceptualization of the world and kind of how i see myself so now um you know living in los angeles trying to um you know aspiring to be a university professor um wherever my journey might take me um i do see myself as you know sort of like a I'm um, advocate of Latinos, uh, sort of a Chicano professor in a sense, and certainly very true to my Mexican American and uh, Mexican border roots. Um, so it's been it's been a journey, especially later on living in Los Angeles, where you do meet so many other people from throughout, you know, like uh, Latin America and other parts of the world. Um, even we're from the Philippines a lot, since a lot of them are considered the um, Latinos of Asia in a sense, because of the Spanish heritage of um, colonization of the Philippines. Um, which is actually pretty, a lot of my friends in Los Angeles are Filipinos and like the little, 
little bit of connection, as kind of minor as it is now that you know things have changed over the centuries, like that sort of joint Spanish sort of cultural Catholic connection kind of brings a lot of us together that perhaps would not exist like in other um, circumstances. So it's uh, um, it's really interesting to see like the wider family, the kind of education and kind of um, exploration of the world uh, can give you can lead lead you towards. Yeah, and especially a city like Los Angeles, like you said, that is just such a large melting pot of culture and humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and what a place to to study for your doctorate. And, you know, um, and I'm glad you brought that up because, um, you know, I, I wanted to know, like, how, because um, you also, so you did your undergrad in Tucson, yes. then you moved to Albuquerque, actually where I was born. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you moved to Los Angeles and you've also traveled extensively. You've been to Asia, you've been to DC, you've done all of these, you've been all around Mexico. Um, how does it, how is your, um, do you feel like people treat you differently in different parts of the country and the world based on your skin color? Well, um, you know, I'm a little bit more lighter uh complected so it's a little different for me you know versus my father or my sister who might be who are a little bit more darker skinned um but if my appearance doesn't necessarily give me away um it might be the uh, slight accent that i have and the way that i pronounce certain words or um certainly in los angeles um we're kind of go about this like a lot of you know perhaps any listeners from southern california can relate to this right um so many of the place names in throughout california and you know, throughout most of the american west you know they're spanish you know from the previous spanish colonization and the brief um decades of mexican rule there in the early 19th century right so, i mean the name los angeles itself is spanish and I, and I really struggle with it because um, I'll refer to most place names in California, like uh, according to their Spanish pronunciation, I'll say like Santa Monica or San Pedro um, or like San Jose. But like I, but I'll say San Francisco or Los Angeles. Uh, um, so uh, <laughs> um, and even California, that's technically has like its Spanish origins, like from uh, this, these um, uh, stories, some of these mythological stories that were told in the um so like early renaissance that talked about like this mythological kingdom of this island somewhere in the ocean which people at the time thought was somewhere in the atlantic ruled by women um by queen califa um so if you really wanted to be i guess loyal to this would be calling it california like oh los angeles california but you know you'll get a weird look but so but pretty much everywhere else like every none of like the major place names all pronounce it according to their correct spanish pronunciation i'll always get a weird weird look from everybody even the latinos that live in los angeles it's a bit of a catch-22 like do they feel like do they feel like you're being pretentious that you're just like ah san pedro (laughs) Um, a little bit you you do get a little bit of that um to your point of like sort of like traveling you know around and about um i don't know i because i've mainly when i've traveled in asia it's been mainly to uh japan and to other places abroad it's been to uh canada uh to uh quebec uh province um and i've never really had like any sort of like negative experiences with it um and even when i've been traveling in mexico um you know those for those of you listeners who are not familiar sort of like with mexican geography you're from the mexican north like where i'm from like uh, you tend to be a little bit you know fair skinned sometimes taller, sometimes a little bit more um, 
physically bulky, quote unquote, um, uh, corpulento, they would say um, in Spanish, versus if you're from you know southern Mexico, you know in general, you know, in general you might you might be a little bit shorter, a little bit more dark complected, and not as physically big. Um, so if like the times that I've gone to Mexico City or have traveled to um, the, the interior of uh, Mexico, whether it's like Guadalajara or like the West Coast, they'll say people always think I'm from the north and like oh mi chihuahuense oh just a chihuahua like uh one of which is the mexico's northernmost state that's right next to uh, new mexico and texas um nowhere i can go to in mexico people anywhere that i go to in mexico people can always like tell that off right off of the bat and even by my the accent of spanish that i speak um and in the u.s um i don't know um it's a little bit hard to tell aside from being called kind of like you know papi occasionally or like bato or like a I never really had like any experience uh, with that, um, so they may need to get out to the uh, East Coast more, like the interior, to kind of see that. I'm a little bit too spoiled growing up here in the uh, the West, where there's so many uh, <laughs> Latinos. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if if that's uh, if you want that, but <laughs> <laughs> but well, I guess you know, I just wonder because um, you know, one thing that's really neat, and one of the reasons why. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast is because you have this really amazing project that you do online that's called Nomadic Border. Can you can you pronounce the Spanish version uh, Spanish title that you have because you have both English mm -hmm. and Spanish titles on your website? La Frontera Nomada. Man, I couldn't even begin. It would just sound <laughs> it would just sound French because that's what everyone says when I speak Spanish is uh, How how, how uh, would you uh, pronounce it? How would you say it in French? I would say La Frontera. Ah, I did it on purpose. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. La Frontera. Uh, um, wait, what is it? Nomadic. Would it be, would it be, like, would it be like Frontier? Or like, uh, like Frontier? Or? It would be Frontier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's because the R's are so different. The R's mm -hmm. for French are so far in the back of your throat. And whereas your R's are up in the front of your mouth. Um, but anyway, maybe you could maybe you could say you speak like a uh, Creole type of French Spanish or something. Well, yeah, now. obviously. <laughs> <laughs> no. um, but anyway, um, so I, this this project that you have um, is really cool. Um, do you want to do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about what they can find in this website and where? Um, sure, sure. So um, the, the website address is www.nomadicborder.com. Um, and it's a website that looks specifically at the history and culture of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. Um, so growing up here in Nogales, as, as we've like uh, mentioned before, um, crossing between two countries sometimes multiple times a day was considered pretty normal for us. So for you know, perhaps some of the, some of the listeners you might have, perhaps like in Europe, they might be perhaps be able to relate to this. If, you know, crossing, uh, you know, different countries, perhaps like for work, you know, on the trains, what have you. Um, for those of you who might live in like bigger cities, um, imagine commuting from like the urban court, perhaps one of the suburbs, like on a freeway. That's as mundane and as simple as that might be for you. That's how it is for us like, to cross the uh, border here in uh, Nogales. Um, a lot of um, American workers might actually go to their jobs on the Mexican side at some of the different uh, manufacturing plants over there. Um, and a lot of Mexican people might go to work um, here on the U.S. side, you know, whatever jobs they might have here, whether it be working at the schools or what have you. So growing up in this environment um, really sensitized me to a lot of things. And growing up here as well, where you really don't learn about this in a critical way. Um, if, you're do if you're going to 
high school here in the U.S., um, let's say at Nogales High School, you're not going to learn about this history too much unless if you have a very creative and inspired uh, teacher. Um, and living in Tucson, living in Albuquerque, living in Los Angeles, I see a lot of people were completely unfamiliar with this. Like, how can that be normal in crossing the border? And certainly, um, you know, as you can imagine, there's a lot of um, commentators out here and here in the U.S. who think that that's bad, that the border should be absolutely close and nobody should be crossing. And they cannot even fathom this a normal thing here. Right. And so I wanted to create a resource that would be accessible, um, sort of like um, intellectually digestible for a fairly educated person, you know, maybe someone who has like a high school education, maybe um, sort of like maybe they're an undergraduate, like a, the college level. And, um, they don't want to make it too much harder than that. I wanted to make this a public history website in the name, Nomadic Border. Um, I got it first um, from the book of a Spanish language uh, monograph on the Mexican Revolution, which was looking specifically at the um, political violence that took place in northern Mexico. It's the state of Sonora, which is the state in Mexico that's immediately south of the border of Arizona. Um, between 1910 and 1920. This is by Mexican historian Hector Aguilar Camin, and the title of his book is La Frontera Nómada. Um, so I wanted to use something like that like for the title of this website, um, but recognizing that the majority of visitors for the website might be from English-speaking um, sources um, or IP addresses, and I can see how that's the case whenever I log into my uh, website dashboard. Um, I decided to choose an English language um, web address, but to have this be as a bilingual website. So I can practice my Spanish language skills as well in writing um, to be a public historian for both the U.S. and Mexico and to try to um, enlighten people on what's going on down here in the U.S.-Mexican border. Um, we could probably, um, you could probably ask me a follow-up question in a few moments what I mean about this, but we have so much media that portrays the border as such a dangerous, physically dangerous zone where the only thing that happens here is crime, um, violence, um, smuggling. Um, and while those things do indeed happen, um, that's, that is not at all like the majority of things that happen here. This is a very normal, um, region of the world. Um, it's a little bit economically depressed, but there's, it's actually one of the safest parts of the U S like uh, the Southwestern border. Yeah. I mean, I never felt in danger any of the times that I taught in the high school. And, and like I mentioned earlier, uh, we did have students that would come and cross the border mm -hmm. every day for class. And, oh, man, they'd bring me tortillas from Mexico. Oh, my God, those were the best. Um, but, you know, I, I want to talk about that wall because that is such a um, there's there's such a at least it, it'll be interesting to see because uh, we're recording this just a few days after uh, Biden um, was sworn in as our new mm -hmm. president, um, which has. Um, one of the things that he decided to do um, on his first day was he he halted the building of the wall um, on the U.S. American um, border. And for um, those of us who are um, Arizonans, um, you know, the wall doesn't do anything. Mm -hmm. I I mean, how many times do you hear stories of they found yet another tunnel? Um, a wall does not do anything that all it is, is an eyesore and, um, and, 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 um, the national monument that is to the West of Nogales, 
mm-hmm. the Oregon pipe um, cactus oh, yes. um, in, near Ajo is um, so beautiful and it was just being destroyed by this by dynamite all and all the wildlife and and I think the thing that's so important to drive home um, Carlos mm-hmm. if, if, and and maybe this is something you can speak to is that um, when you when you put a wall in between this you know it's an imaginary wall and um and you're literally separating families either like animals like birds and javelinas or roadrunners or quail or whatever lives in the desert coyotes and um and human beings so um i really enjoyed reading um your um your most recent um article about the wall in Nogales and the um the marker um the I, I forgot what it's called specifically the ma- boundary marker uh, a 127 127 oh my gosh I'm terrible mm-hmm. edit that out no I'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> um because there was no there was no wall there up in um from the time of the Mexican American War to around i think you said around 1920 1918 Mm -hmm. and even then it was just like a very short like two mile fence just between this within the cities themselves um so to give our listeners like a a little bit of a context here um the most recent article that i've written uh, for my website that uh trish is uh, referring to um it's called monumental border mistakes uh boundary monument 127 um and it looks specifically at this issue of um the U.S.-Mexican border between Arizona and the state of Sonora in Mexico being surveyed incorrectly in the 1850s. Um, uh, and I look, you know, I, I analyze, uh, I retell the history of the boundary monuments initially demarcated, like the border between the two countries and how that's been, how that landscape has been shifting um, recently. And actually very, very recently, up at this, the border wall construction here in Nogales barely picked up in uh, September of 2020, um, you know, and it's, it looks like it's winding down, but actually there's a lot of reports from a lot of uh, wildlife observers that construction is still ongoing. Um, but this was a fairly recent development. Um, so I wanted to give people, again, the audience that I mentioned before, people who might be in high school, who might not learn about this, um, whether they be here in Nogales, because I really would like the youth of communities like Nogales to be able to understand their history since they might not be getting this from other sources. Um, sort of lovers of um, the outdoors and certainly defenders of wildlife um, who, are, who are really concerned with um, how this might, you know, border walls like this and these sorts of barriers might impact um, the ecological diversity of places like the Sonoran Desert where Arizona is located. Um, where the, this border wall is being constructed might actually completely eliminate the tiny jaguar population that we have in southern arizona which is the northernmost extension of jaguar species anywhere in the world um we might actually be seeing like the last days of that because of this border wall um oh that just makes me so angry (laughs) it's sickening it's sickening and i'll give you a um a a few website links for you trish maybe you can share with your listeners i love that and also listeners we're definitely going to have a link to carlos's website uh, or Dr. P, as I like to call mm-hmm. him too, um, <laughs> so that y'all can learn a little bit, especially those of you that are outside of the U.S. But 
and maybe also especially those of you that are in like Nogales and 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 have no idea of this history. Mm-hmm. So and certainly, so obviously, um, you know, you mentioned you know how like there's still ways around walls, but this is the one thing I do want to drive home to our listeners here. The majority of people who are in the United States, um, you know, um, without documents, you know, undocumented immigrants, they're actually here on um, expired visas. So people who might enter the country lawfully with tourist visas or other type of temporary visas, they just overstay them and they remain here. That is the number one way in which people arrive here. So the, the biggest entry point for a lot of undocumented immigrants might be places like LAX or um, JFK you know, or airports in Los Angeles and uh, New York City. It's not, it's not, you know, hide, uh, sneaking through the desert and it's not being smuggled in through Coyote. So that's something right. important for us. Um, and we do, and obviously, you know, we, you know, we have like limited time this morning, but the, we do have to consider the larger picture here. Um, you know, people are coming in because they want jobs for the most part. Most people immigrating from Latin America in particular, they're coming to the U.S. specifically for economic opportunities and you know, we can't deny the U.S.'s economic system really has like a big pull on people from all over the world, just of the promise of opportunity. Um, we, when we think about immigration reform or things like border security, you know, we owe it to ourselves to think like, look, there's the tide of people that are coming in. They're going to come in no matter what. How could it be advantageous for us as Americans? And I'm saying you don't have to necessarily be like a liberal bleeding heart like me, um, like to think this, but maybe you could be a um, pragmatist maybe who's maybe conservative you could say you know what i i am a conservative i'm a fiscal conservative you know i think we owe it to ourselves like, to trim down like on the budget we spend on border security infrastructure and border enforcement maybe we can have a more lenient form of um immigration policy where people can come in and then they'll go back to their home country and they'll stay there which i'll tell our listeners that was actually the prevailing model for um Migrants who would come to the U.S. up until the 70s and the 80s when we started having all this border infrastructure. People would come in, they'd do their work, and then they'd go back to Mexico or elsewhere in Latin America. Um, people, they understood a lot of like these sort of like first-generation immigrants, they understood they were not welcome here in the U.S., and they didn't really care for a lot of the racism that they felt here, and they preferred to go return where they had their family, where they had their, you know, their kinfolk, their social relations, and where they were born and where they, and many of their dreams wanted to be buried in too so this is without getting too preaches is something we should consider you know it's not just about you know border security we need to have like a bigger picture regardless of what political standpoint we have have you heard about the migration of um i think they're from Nicar- nicaragua that are coming mm-hmm. up um have you have you seen that on the news i i think they might be from um, honduras oh um, i'm sorry I, you're right yes yes honduras yeah. Yeah, I think they might be uh, them, you know, a sizable contingent of uh, um, Salvadoran migrants, too, who are joining the, these so-called uh, caravans. Um, cause they feel that it's safer for them to grow up as a journey up north as a big single group rather than to take a major risk immigrating like by themselves, like as in groups like two or three, um, exposing themselves to dangers and um migration to the U.S. certainly slowed down during the um, outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic. So we can't really give credit to the very destructive border while it's going up because um, that hasn't really been up. And we can't, just from a purely statistical, empirical standpoint, we, we can't give it credit because we don't have data on that. But there is this group as of late January 2021 that seems to be making its way. It's still in Guatemala. 
At this point, I mean, it remains to be seen if they'll be able to get through to across Guatemala and throughout Mexico. And they, um, and this really goes to show like how nationalism can really blind us. Um, a few years ago, and there was another sizable caravan that crossed through Mexico, a caravan of Central American migrants. Um, by the time they reached Tijuana, um, the group was so big that that was one of the main place that they congregated trying to get into the U.S. and to petition for asylum. Um, the group was so big that it was, you know, if you looked at them on the news, it made a lot of people scared. I understand it was such a big group of people. They're going to leave, you know, waste behind them. Um, and it's certainly a major burden on any municipal organization, you know, that has to like deal with them. But a lot of Mexican people started like saying, we don't want these people here. We don't want open borders. Mexican people in Mexico using the same rhetoric that a lot of sort of conservative folk in the U.S. or immigration restrictions have used for decades about Mexican people. We got to close the border. And you would see a lot of people in Mexico actually praising Trump for defending the U.S.-Mexican border against uh, undocumented immigrants of all types. Right. Um, and this, to me, is like the really nauseating thing about how like nationalism can really blind us like to the shared humanity we should have with one another and to look at how problems like this are going to get more complex as we go on through this century. Um, really demand that we actually work together, especially with the, um, you know, the the oncoming global crisis of droughts. I mean, we're looking mm-hmm. at last year being the hottest year on record to date and globally, globally. Um, and, you know, um, here in Arizona, I mean, the you know, the amount of rainfall that is lacking. Yes, we're in a period called we call El Nino. Um, or maybe it's El Nino. Now I've forgotten. I listeners mm-hmm. listen yeah, to I a previous <laughs> previous episode. I know I knew what I was talking about then, but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but we've gone the most days um, at 100 degrees or higher. Um, you know the lack of rainfall, um, and this is uh, you know hurting crops, and this is happening globally. And one mm-hmm. of the reasons that this caravan of humans are coming up from um, Honduras is because. Um, see how my accent gets just a little bit better there more. Uh, no, but uh, thank you. Uh, gracias. Oh, I almost said merci. <laughs> oh, my brain just can't. Oh man. Uh, but anyway, um, there, this group of people are, um, you know, they're, they're trying to, they're trying to, to flee, um, droughts and, and, and all of these things. And, you know, I hate to be a cheese ball and quote a movie like this, but um, <laughs> I watched uh, an inconvenient truth, like every mm-hmm. good liberal did in the uh, <laughs> in the in the two thousands, and and this was something that they had talked about that you know um, that the global economies are going to have um, issues with their borders as more and more people flee places where droughts are are ruining their their crops and they what are you going to do you have there has to be a global agreement on what kind of you can't just be like no you can't go you can't come here um okay well if they can't come here where can they go and and if you don't want to like I was when I was watching this on on actually BBC America um the other mm-hmm. day BBC news the first thing I thought of was um well, if you don't, if we don't want, if Mexico and, um, you know, America and Costa Rica, whatever countries that, 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 that Hondurians are going to pass through 
on their way north. Um, is there a way to to get together and collaborate and and try to come up with a you know some kind of plan to help their country? I don't know. I don't know if that's a weirdo hippie way to look at the world, but. Well, I, I don't think, well, I mean, we need to be careful, sort of like with these like labels, calling it like hippie or whatever, because we have to think like, uh, if we have these crises or we have things like caravans and, um, you know, we're not going to sugarcoat it. Certainly when you have such a massive group of people moving, um, and let's just, you know, be blunt about it, you know, without, you know, official permission, you know, they don't have like legal papers, let's say to be entering Guatemala or be entering Mexico. Um, I mean, it is a problem. And certainly again, you know, um, we need to be humane to these people and, but they're, they're, they do, there is certainly like, you know, certainly like a risk, like a security risk for these, you know, such a gigantic group of people. When you have 8,000 people crossing like rural communities in Southern Mexico, don't have the infrastructure to care for these people and they're going to leave waste mine. It does, I mean, it is a risk and we can't, you know, we, it's not fair to be uh, totally dismissed sort of like some of the more legitimate concerns that people might have when you know, they raise it about the caravans. But we do have to think if things like these are happening more and more, Maybe we need to reflect that maybe the old way of doing things is just not working anymore. That might have worked in a different time. Um, but certainly, um, the 2020s, there might be a big turning point in the history of the world. Um, and I think we've been living through this, um, turning point, like in the last five years, since, since the mid 2010s, when you've seen like the rise of populist movements throughout the world. Oh, that's interesting. You, you, you've brought up the mm -hmm. populist way of thinking, which, um, Joe, um, brought up a couple episodes. Mm -hmm um previous um and 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 what what does that if that shift in in thinking carlos what does that mean to you specifically well um you know from my point of view and this is excuse me let's say a historian of the u.s and mexico you know focusing on um, the 20th century for the most part we both of our countries and most of the western world at this point you know we practice this economic model called uh, neoliberalism um where it's you know trying let's get you know just do free trade not fair trade let's do free trade let's you know increase like the movement of economic goods because if we promote economic development in different let's say emerging societies that's going to be a net good for everybody um that's going to improve everyone's well-being and this is one of the main driving points between um mexico's embrace of nafta in the 1990s um, it wasn't just the U.S. shoving it down Mexico's throats. It was the Mexican political elite accepting this. And we've seen versions of NAFTA being promoted throughout Central America in the 2010s. And very interestingly, 10 years later, now we're having these massive caravans of people trying to escape from over there. Hmm. Cause and effect, perhaps? Cause and effect, definitely. Right. Um, so, and we're seeing throughout the world, whether we're looking at Brazil, um, to an extent, France, obviously, you know, when we see like the yellow jacket movement over there, right? Um, or the yellow, yellow vest, yeah. yellow vest, right? Um, or in Italy, where we have also sort of like right wing populism, like taking over in Poland. It's a lot of these countries, and certainly here in the US, when we look at the rise of, you know, Donald Trump and uh, this ideology of making America great, we're seeing the deindustrialization of old sectors, and people are getting upset. They see the government's moving away. Part of this, we do, the, there is this sense that these um, elites tend to be considered exclusively liberal, which is not fair. Because a lot of the biggest promoters of this neoliberalism model were actually Republican politicians. You know, we have Richard Nixon kind of getting this going. We have Ronald Reagan really picking this up. And then we also have like Democrats like, uh, you know, the Clintons, both Bill and Hillary and their different um, offices promoting this throughout the world and continued through Obama. Um and a lot of this is just not working for a lot of people financially. When we see 
change cultural changes when looking at like the acceptance of um however embattled it might be like this acceptance of like lgbt people you know at least greater acceptance than before and a lot of people are just nervous with these changes this deindustrialization um economic opportunity you know restricting itself uh combined with all these cultural changes and people are lashing out in different ways um so Looking, going back to like, you know, why are these caravans coming from Central America? In the case of Honduras specifically, um, in 2009, there was a military coup that took place um, right after a very hotly contested presidential election where a left-wing candidate uh, won re-election. And under President Obama's watch and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's support, the U.S. supported the um, coup uh efforts um so the left-wing president manuel Zelaya was thrown out the the right winger took over because he said he was going to protect um, industries in honduras um you know private property and industries and all this malarkey and now we have the uh gangs that were pretty much had taken over el salvador after the u.s's interventions there in the 80s the the like the mara ms-13 like uh, and these, uh, all sorts of other gangs he took over honduras pretty much and it's pretty much teetering on becoming a completely failed state 10, 10 years on from this coup. Um, so we really need to, you know, this is not a democratic issue. This is not a Republican issue, liberal conservative. We need to just look at the facts and look at how these models are not working and like how this U.S. interventionism is, you know, having these problems. And when we look at like, you know, oh, the caravan is coming, the caravan's coming. Um, we're not asking, well, why are they coming? You know, what role did the U.S. have? And if right. we're going to ask that, like, you know, what potential solutions can we have um, like to keep people? One of the, um, policies that Mexico's president Andres Manuel López Obrador promoted when he was running for office in 2018 was that we need to have a Marshall Plan to rebuild Central America so that people stay where they grew up in and where they want to live. And you know, you're you're a bit of a francophile, you love French history, and probably some of our listeners might be, you know, lovers of you know world or European history, but those who are not familiar, the Marshall Plan was the U.S. initiative that helped rebuild Western Europe after World War II. Basically, gave in, intense American investment in different um, organizations in Europe that allowed for Western Europe to strengthen its democratic institutions. Um, you know, not not without its uh, sh- shortcomings. You know, the strings attached, of course. But right. um, and a lot of people in France really hate that for kind of basically ruining like, the French Empire. But um, or what was left of it, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, there is something to be said that you know, when you have investment in like human capital and certainly in democratic institutions, it, it helps eliminate like these extremist things, or at least in the case of Central America, like these opportunities for organized crime like, to take over where um, the nation state is not able to function in that. So, you know, it's just uh, some food for thought for us to consider. Yeah. And, you know, you bring up some very good points about how, um, I mean, the, the catchphrase of 2020 should be right white fragility Mm -hmm. because it was a moment where um with the um post george floyd um killing and the rise of black lives matter um having such a much bigger voice i don't want to say it was the rise as in the beginning Mm -hmm. but it just gained so much more global momentum and and i know i've talked about this in, in, in previous episodes but the the fact that People are concerned about people coming um, and, and you know, maybe losing jobs and all of these things when when really um, it it's it's just 
how are we electing our officials into the government and what are we holding them accountable for? So, for instance, you mentioned that this happened in Honduras under the watchful eye of of Obama, who so many liberals think think of as just this phenomenal leader. Mm -hmm. And now they look at his vice president becoming president as as sort of he's going to be this phenomenal Mm -hmm. leader. And, you know, look, he he picked a person of color and, um, you know, everything's going to be great and and wonderful. Um, What are you what are your thoughts on this this uh, person that has been involved with the Obama administration? Um, becoming president, what do you what do you see as as sort of the pros and cons? Well, of that? You know, certainly during the twenty twenty election, like there was a lot of debate between a lot of people on the political left in the United States, right? You know, why can we? Why in the world are we going to support um, former Vice President Biden um, after the way he won the Democratic primary and after like his very long career promoting a lot of these neoliberal policies that a lot of people are just fed up with, you know, in different ways? Because he was a big promoter of um, NAFTA and a lot of these other agreements of people that are harming people's lives and are uh, sort of encouraging like this movement of people across borders. Um, and there's a lot to be said about like his promoting of like free trade with um, China, which um, that's a whole other hour. I think we could talk about that. But I think the um, loss of American jobs and a lot of jobs throughout like the Western world too, for that matter, like to China for like it's essentially like sweatshops over there. Um, it's been probably one of the worst things that um, the West has done, like into the after like World War II. I think it's not to say that um, China should not have developed economically and you know assert its place in the world as one of the great powers of the world, considering how big it is. Um, but not in the way that it did, like you know, with a, basically like through like modern day like slave labor or like through horrible labor conditions. So a lot of people, there's a lot of people that I follow, um, sort of like crystal ball. Uh, who has this? Uh, um, who, who's on this uh, channel on YouTube called The Hill, where she has a show called uh, Rising, uh, or Kyle Kalinsky, who has a channel on YouTube called Secular Talk, but you know, the, uh, who's the host of the uh, Kyle Kalinsky show? His main argument, and for, for both of them, was that Joe Biden hadn't done anything like to really earn the vote of uh, left wingers, or you know, sort of like left wing, like a uh, populist, uh, or people who were supportive of, of um, Bernie Sanders. And they said, like, you know, why should we vote for Biden? But for a lot of us who you know, might be, you know, communities of color uh, who live in places like uh, Nogales, where you have like this border wall being built, where most people here do not want it, um, there was no other choice. You know, you're not going to um, vote for somebody in the Green Party that has zero chance of winning and who had even less media coverage than in the last two elections. And you're not going to vote for one of the libertarian goofballs that doesn't really believe in anything either. Um and you're not going to write in Bernie Sanders. And that is something that I made sure to tell my friends. Like, I know we're all heartbroken that Bernie didn't get elected. Um, however, we cannot just throw this away. We cannot have another um, four years of this degradation. Degradation, yeah. Well, was well, 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 Norm uh, Chomsky. Of, of our demo- uh, democracy. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, so it, it, we probably know he's at the University of Arizona now, right? Um, yeah, I saw him speak there uh, when I lived there, but I, I knew about him years before. Mm-hmm. And listeners might recall in, in last week's um, 
episode, Howard mm-hmm. Zinn is oh, yeah. mentioned. Um, no, no, so, no, yeah, another I one love, of my heroes, yeah. Um, so with yeah. Chomsky, his main assertion, you know, he's kind of like the icon like of the political left in the U.S. is he said, you know, Biden is a terrible candidate, but, you know, we cannot, you know, the planet, you know, in terms of climate change, cannot afford four more years of this administration. And his most compelling argument for me um, was, you know, what do you think um, President Trump will do with four more years of weakening democratic institutions? Do you think that it'll be possible for uh, progressive progressive movements to succeed when the courts are completely far right or when the, all political institutions are far right, especially after they would have manipulated the results of the 2020 census that they'd had their way? Um, it's just pragmatism. You know, we have to unfortunately make these tough choices sometimes and um, just have to be real about it. Um, uh, it's not to say that there should not be involvement or mobilization for um, this thing called like the people's movement um, you know, that's trying like to create like a viable like third party for progressives. We're um, like, listening to people like Marianne Williamson, um, who, despite being portrayed as this goofball hippie in the media, is a very, very impressive um, political commentator and critic, and she deserves a little bit more um, credit than people give her. Um, you know, but it goes to show again, like the power of the media and all this. But um, you know, we had to make that choice. And looking at with Joe Biden, you know, he has, you know, it was very um, encouraging that on his first day in office, that he ordered um, a, a pause in the U.S. border wall construction. Um, the way that Donald Trump made these contracts, perhaps some of them will still get built even at, even through this. And there's actually reporting um, that construction is still ongoing in some of the um legally protected areas of southern arizona we have this national park site that's uh east of nogales um, near the um military base by sierra vista for huachuca um coronado national memorial which is a national park site um under nor under normal u.s laws for environmental and cultural preservation you would not be building this wall period much less without any public hearings or without any public studies because these walls are built without any studies at all. Um, and it is, it remains to be seen whether they'll survive like a massive monsoon storm in the future or whether they'll survive erosion. Um, but we, but ju- just this morning, no, no, it's true. And just this morning, um, cause we had these, some of these walls have been built like, um, you know, it's questionable. It's questionable how long they'll survive. Even just this morning, I was watching, uh, uh, this, um, group, this environmental group called the uh, wildlands, border network and they were documenting how construction is still ongoing as of today january 23rd three days after president biden's uh executive order it's saying that the walls must stop being built after seven days of, so by january 20th we'll see if walls are still going up um but there was really no choice really well unfortunately carlos i mean god we could just keep going there's so much more to talk about um, but we unfortunately have come to the end of the podcast. So um, I would love to have you just come back on again, um, maybe in a few mm-hmm. months, once we see um, what's going on with the administration, um, or if we need a little bit more mm-hmm. time um, to just sort of analyze what's what's happened, um, especially in the border. And I just want to thank you so much for, um, you know, being uh, a sound, uh, sounding board or, or a megaphone of a culture that, um, 
unless you live in Southern Arizona, you just have no idea about. Thank you. And everyone check out his website. Um, but Carlos, we are going to switch gears now to um, rapid yes. fire questions. Are All right. Ready? I'll uh, do my best here. <laughs> okay. What's your favorite memory from childhood? Um, well, here in Nogales, like there's a um, ice cream shop where they sell raspados or shaved ice uh, uh, called um, uh, Finitos. And that was like one of my favorite things like doing like as a child, like, especially having like the uh, orange shaved ice or like uh, raspados. So, so delicious. Uh, Carlos, you said you, you've got a lot of Gen X friends, especially those of us born in the late <laughs> 70s. Um have any of us introduced you to some 80s bands or musicians that you think are particularly amazing? You know, that's like the one thing that I haven't like uh, enjoyed. Like, <laughs> it's more like watching like TV shows or um, being lectured for not knowing like some of these like uh, uh, stingers like in the <laughs> 80s and the 90s. But um, no, unfortunately, I don't have any bands that they introduced me to. Sad face. Um, okay, I'll work on that because we've been friends for so long. I, I mean, we've but talked we don't about ever the Eagles talk a lot, about that. You know, and like uh Hotel California. <laughs> so there, there you go. <laughs> and and I and I made you listen to um you two's the Joshua Tree oh, yeah. when I took you to Joshua Tree National Park for the first time. So <laughs> um what is your favorite 80s mu- movie? And I feel like I'm gonna know the answer to what do, this. what do you think my answer is gonna be? <laughs> I think it's gonna be Star Wars. You know, I, I think my eight favorite 80s movie is actually Back to the Future, the first one, because it because the Star Wars, even though I like oh. those better for me, like Back to the Future is just like the perfect cultural snapshot of what 1980s America was like. It's just in all its glory. Oh. Like it's just and you can never make a movie like that again, especially like some of like the humor yeah. that they had never again. Could you have like a film quite like that? Yeah, which is kind of ironic because most of the movie was filmed in the was supposed to take place in the mm-hmm. 50s. So, but you're right, it doesn't get much more 80s than that. And and I, listeners, I know that Star Wars is mostly a 1970s um, franchise from back in the day, but um, but Return of the Jedi. Well, and the and the most and the most loved of all the uh, original Star Wars movies, The Empire Strikes Back, uh, came out in 1980. So it opened up the Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, it did. Um, And uh, okay, but I love that. Back to the Future was totally my fave um, when I was a kid when that came out. And then, um, Carlos, why did you go to college? Well, it was always expected of me, of my uh, mother, that you know she really had like a strong value uh, for education. And my grandparents, uh, you know, who did not speak English, you know, they lived in Mexico. Um, They also valued like education, so you need to work with your mind, not with your hands. Um, yeah. so that's why I did and it. your and your mom also has a doctoral yes yes degree. so she um got her um phd in um educational uh leadership and curriculum development at the northern arizona university in flagstaff and up in the pines yeah um so she um i was in high school when she started working on her um you know phd so i really got to see everything she went through firsthand and it helped me retain some of my sanity having like this uh model that i saw firsthand like uh you know a few years ago I'm very proud of her. Yeah, that is pretty awesome. So, Carlos, um, if you could give advice to any generation um, to either get through the good times or the bad times, what would that be? Well, more than anything, like, you know, we need to um, not take ourselves like too seriously. We need to be open minded enough to understand other people, not necessarily agree with them, but at least understand where people are coming with and kind of analyze things and don't take everything 
at face value. Like, you know, for this, you know, like what we just mentioned right now, you know, like Biden and Harris and how, you know, they're problematic history, you know, we need to be pragmatic and we need to, you know, do what needs to be done, you know, and, and but, you know, not, at, but at the same time also like hold them accountable and demand better from them. Um, you know, kind of, you know, we can do better. You know, always remind ourselves that also on a personal level too, we can, we might be at a certain level right now. Maybe we're, we feel like we might be at a dead end job. We might feel like, you know, school's pointless. Um, but we have to just keep on trying. We have to keep on grinding and, you know, kind of, you know, climbing up of all this, you know, nothing that is worthwhile in life is going to be handed to us in a silver platter. And it's through adversity that makes, you know, sort of like the, um, crown of victory and that much more exciting and much more savory at the end of the day kind of like um matured wine i guess you know it takes time and it takes sacrifice um you know but the reward is or maybe using a hiking metaphor sometimes when you're going up in these hikes you know you might not see anything at all you're just in the sun there's no shade um you just maybe look through a canyon wall but when you get to the very end um you see like this glorious panorama and you just have to be patient and you need to work for it and that's um, I'm not sure if maybe I'm being a little bit too uh, baby boomer there when I should be millennial, but um, I think maybe that's something <laughs> all of us, you know, m- you know, baby boomers, um, Gen Xers, millennials, and Zoomers, I guess, uh, that we can all uh, relate yeah. to. Well, Dr. P, my friend Carlos, thank you so much for taking time to uh, speak with us today. <laughs> thank you, Trish. And it was really wonderful to speak with you all on a podcast on here on Gen X Voice. Thanks for listening. And if you think this is worth listening to, please subscribe, share, and leave a review. Be kind to each other, listen to each other, and let's stop being separated by our differences. Mm-hmm.